Welcome to Resonance, conversations about life and music, a production of Palaver Strings with me, your host, Nate Martin. Today, I am sharing a conversation with Lysander Jaffe from the old Palaver podcast. Lysander is, among other things, a violist in Palaver, a master's student at NEC's Contemporary Improvisation Department, that's New England Conservatory, and a member of the band Columba, heard of them on the show before. Now, at the time of this conversation, uh, Lysander and Columbo were working on a program with Palaver Strings titled Mappa Mundi that celebrated various folk traditions from Europe and the ways they became intertwined with classical music. And in our interview, uh, we tapped into something personal about Lysander that I feel is true for me and uh, I think also for many other members of Palaver, it's this kind of sense that while we're in this, in Palaver, the business of Palaver, together, that each of us uh, comes from a very unique past and also sees a very unique future for ourselves and for our musical lives. And as we look at that path forward, we're kind of daunted because <laughs> we see that it's not a well-traveled path. Lysander is so much fun to talk to. A brilliant man, a great storyteller, thoughtful, empathetic musician and collaborator. And his path has led him towards the various folk musics of Europe, and particularly Eastern Europe. And as we transition into the recording of our conversation, I want to play a clip of Columba. They're usually a quintet, but this is them as a trio. Uh, The first voice that you'll hear is Lysander, then baritone Adam Jacob Simon, and then mezzo-soprano and friend of the podcast, Sophie Michaud. Uh, What you're going to hear is a traditional terzetti from the island of Corsica. It is gorgeous. Please enjoy. Conway? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell the good people out there about the town of Conway? The town of Conway is a wonderful small town in Western Mass. Many people do not know where it is. Um, it's when I was growing up there, there were maybe 1500 people in the town. Now I think we're up to like 3000, but very small farming town. It's the kind of place where if your grandparents didn't grow up in the town, you were considered a newcomer to the town. Even though I lived there all my childhood. Um, and yeah, not a lot to say about Conway. <laughs> Except that it's small, it's in the hills. Yeah. And also, I think Western Mass often gets sort of clumped like communities in Western Mass often get clumped together under this category of Western Mass because there is such a cultural identity to that whole half of the state. And there are like whatever town that you live in, it's sort of similar to Maine in Mm -hmm. the way that like there's like the mid coast and that has its own like cultural identity. And if you live anywhere within like basically 30 miles of (laughs) like one central point that I can't sort of come up with at the top of my head. It's like you, that that's your like cultural identity. So like the fact that you were born in Conway, it sort of means that you were close to Amherst and Northampton, right? Yeah. That's like, and also, and also, yeah, Vermont and Greenfield, Brattleboro, Brattleboro. Yeah. yeah, It's like 45 minute drive. Right. 
So Western, which is like nothing, right? Yeah, like, I feel like, like everything's a forty-five minute right. drive. When growing up, Conway. Growing up outside of Boston, I would like Boston was forty-five minutes away, and it was like, oh, that's so long. Yeah. And now I live in Maine, and it's like forty-five minutes. All right, cool. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's a different different mindset for sure. Yeah. And I noticed that even between different parts of Western Mass, like I grew up in Franklin County, which is closer to Vermont and more rural and, um like poorer, more working class overall. Um, and then I had a lot of friends who lived in like Amherst and Northampton, which is Hampshire County, which like has college towns. And um, there's like a certain level of, of snobbery there right. and like unwillingness to drive to places like Conway, <laughs> even though it's like 20 minutes. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Western Mass as a whole has a very strong, uh, cultural identity or series of overlapping identities like there's kind of there's a lot of farming going on and agricultural stuff um there's a lot of like progressive politics and people who move there for that reason um a lot of artists and artisans and kind of people making things creatively and a lot of overlap in between those things yeah um what do you remember as like, what are your earliest memories of music? Well, my parents are both jazz pianists. So I feel like, um, I, I don't actually have memories of this, but I've been told that like my mom always tells the story of bringing me to her, um, rehearsal of this like Afro Cuban dance band that she was in at the time when I was like an infant and she put me in a corner and I guess they started playing some like really intense loud polyrhythms and she looked over and I looked like I was having a seizure and so she was freaking out and the drummer in the band said like oh no he's just like absorbing all these polyrhythms into his system (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah I think I just went to a lot of rehearsals with my parents because they were both doing music pretty full-time at the time I was born and my dad still does music full time. My mom now works at UMass and um, helps out the scholars at the one of their research centers there. But at the time, that was just like what I got to do instead of being with a babysitter. Right. Just yeah, yeah. Be at their rehearsals. Yeah. What was the first time where it switched over into like there this like a direct connection between Lysander and music, or like when were when were you first conscious of that? Huh. It's an interesting question. Well, I can remember my first violin lessons. I guess it's around the time I started playing violin. Yeah. So that was when I was five and it was Suzuki lessons. So, and my teacher was pretty hardcore, like for what seemed like an eternity, I was just singing and doing the chopstick bow thing and Mm -hmm not actually having any contact with the violin or bow. Can you describe the chopstick bow thing? I'm oh, not yeah. sure I know what that is. Um, just like learning the, the bow hold using a chopstick and kind of moving it up and down and doing different things with it. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a long time and <laughs> I had to sing A's and um, I think maybe I sang some of the Suzuki songs that I would later learn, but I can remember doing that kind of practice with with my dad mostly. Yeah. And starting to get into that. Yeah. When did your like exploration of folk traditions come up? If if Suzuki was the first thing that's yeah. like that's sort of argue it, we can we can argue about whether that's classical or not, you know, but like <laughs> right. that's um when did that when did those two streams sort of diverge, I guess? I guess, well, when I was eight, I remember my dad went to see Kalman Bialog and the Okros Ensemble, who are like two of the best Hungarian, Romanian um, violin. It's it's like traditional music from Hungary and, and Romania and Transylvania. Yeah. And he brought back these CDs and it's just like this insane, fast, like gnarly gypsy fiddle music. Yeah. And I just remember listening to those CDs like every day. And how old were you? Uh, I was eight, I think. Yeah. 
and getting really into that. So that was like my first exposure of like, oh, there's all this other stuff yeah. you can do with, with the violin. Right. And then in middle school, I had a choir director who did a lot of um, Bulgarian music with us. And so that introduced me to that whole world. And okay. um, I remember just feeling totally floored by that and really wanting to explore it more. So I ended up, um, she put me in touch with Village Harmony, which is this folk singing camp that um, I now teach for and do a lot of work with. And But I started going to those summer camps as a teenager and um, getting a lot of exposure to a lot of the Eastern European music that I'm really passionate about. Right. And so, yeah, that shift happened really in high school. And with that one, trying to figure out how to do Eastern European stuff on the violin, which I didn't really have any guidance on at that point. Right. Village but, Harmony is primarily about singing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what was like, were you still taking lessons were there other like classical ensembles that were sort of on the other side of that um yeah i took lessons all through high school um and i started i was trained as a violinist but i started playing viola also when i was a sophomore in high school because there were no violists and mm-hmm. the school said mm-hmm. please play viola mm-hmm. like we'll provide you this with this crap instrument and <laughs> pay for your lessons for a year yeah so and my friend and I did it together, like one of my best friends, nice. Marlon, who's um, now back in the area teaching violin and viola to yeah, small children, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So was it all like school ensembles? Um, yeah, I was in I was in the Springfield Symphony Youth Orchestra for a while, yeah. which is like the big regional youth orchestra associated with the like the nearest professional orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um which was really fun. I actually, I, I loved orchestra. Yeah. And, um, what kind of stuff were you playing? We did, we had, we had some awesome conductors who did pretty, um, adventurous stuff with us. I'm trying to, we played like part of the firebird at one point, which was sort of insane for high schoolers to do. Um, we did some Copeland, uh, yeah, it was a lot of like big, exciting pieces. Yeah. Um, that were really fun to play. Yeah. Was it, was there at any point in there a like realization or a belief that like you were going to be a musician as a like adult person? (laughs) Um, I think if anything, it was the opposite of that. Like, yeah. And a lot of that just came from my own sort of weird hangups and sibling rivalry growing up in like, our right, family of really high level yeah. musicians like both my siblings are amazing professional musicians and yeah your older sister that yeah i have an older a, sister who's a flautist and a younger brother plays jazz bass yeah and especially like growing up in this very jazz oriented family and having that not be my primary skill set or something i was particularly good at yeah um i think i sort of i felt like well, I'm, you know, like I love music, but this isn't going to be a career for me. Yeah. And I I felt that way pretty much until like my senior year of college. Okay. Yeah. Looking back on that, do you feel like, how do you feel about that now? Um, What was going on? Like, do you think you were, there was any part of you that was like thinking like, oh man, I really wish I had an identity as a musician, you know? Yeah. I think there was a lot of, yeah, just confusion and not, not having models to look up to who are doing music in a way that like I wanted to do music as an adult. Right. And now I think I have that more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because the model was basically like, you're going to learn a lot of jazz and play the jazz music like your parents and yeah for my brother it was and he works incredibly hard like and like practices so much and just is like a constant bubbling font of musicality at all times um so he had that and but he also had a lot of like really clear like my parents knew like who the good bass teachers were in the area right knew which jazz camps to send him to they knew like yeah 
there was a lot of pressure for him to move to New York, like as soon as humanly possible. Like when, yeah. he, when he got into every college in the world and was thinking about like where he should go to school. <laughs> like it was like my dad and all his friends being like, well, obviously he has to go to Juilliard because it's in New York and all the jazz is in New York. And so he had a lot of decisions kind of like not made for him, but very clear pathways laid out of like, right. if you want to do this, this is what you do. Yeah. And it's so interesting that I, I feel like music maybe maybe more than other like kinds of career traditions mm -hmm. have those like pathways yeah yeah like, and it's and it's interesting to think about like jazz having that now in a way that even like 30 years ago right didn't exist yeah it's becoming institutionalized and right you know gentrified definitely in a way yeah i think yeah or there's that sort of danger of like once you like care for something yeah so and that's i haven't thought about this before but like that's kind of what happened with classical music a little bit of like people cared so much and they created these institutions to help care for the music uh -huh. you know and then and then it sort of separated itself yeah to a point where now you like you say as a musician in boston like oh yeah i'm going to school and how many people think you go to berkeley do you think like, like everybody yeah yeah literally everybody yeah yeah <laughs> yeah if you're a musician in boston i think you go to berkeley because that's the that's the one that they've heard of and it's the that's like the popular music one yeah so um, it's yeah i hadn't thought of it as like a caring thing but i th i think that's kind of yeah, I think there's something there. Caring is probably the wrong word, but well, but wanting to curate and preserve something, right? Which leads to the question of like, if it needs to be preserved, why is that? Is it is it because it's already the world around it is changing and it won't somehow last without preservation, right? And that's a really interesting question for folk musicians too, because there's so much work of like preserving the traditions and trying to kind of shield them from outside influences that yeah. in reality, the traditions that survive, like manage to incorporate outside re outside influences right. in ways that are, that feel true and relevant and mm -hmm. like are creating meaning. Right. Yeah. One thing that I know that we've talked about a little bit that I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. is about how you learned violin on like through folk music through the violin yeah and i know that there's like especially with folk music and maybe more generally with traditions that are like more oral mm -hmm. instead of um you know classical which is primarily like the, the music yeah. is written down right like if you want to learn something you have the score and so for folk music there's this there's this, it's, it's much more common to say like, I learned this from this person yeah, who either did a recording or was at a camp or right. like whatever. When did you start doing that with violin? And like, what were those first, who were those first people? Um, so I went to a couple Balkan music and dance camps okay. in like my first couple years of college and Beth Cohen, who still teaches at Berkeley and Tufts and a bunch of other schools in Boston and has mastered um, all kinds of violin traditions from all over the world. Um, but she was a big influence for, in terms of just like giving me a methodology to do that. And she's a person who like really knows how to like break down a tune into logical segments and teach it by ear and slowly layer on things like ornamentation or, um, mm. variations that you can do. Um, and she's, yeah, she's actually been really influential on the way i teach folk music now yeah because the way she does it makes so much sense yeah so you found her in college yeah and i i really only just i i went to like a couple of her workshops in the summer and had a I've had a few lessons with her in boston since i moved here um but that was like really formative for me and um yeah and as far as like having models like this is someone i really Right. look up to as like you can build a whole really rich musical life around this yeah. music yeah and have that be what you do yeah and the the folks who are best at it i'm familiar with this through my mom yeah who does who 
is like an Irish traditional musician, like there's a big element of her work that is what I would call musicology, where mm -hmm. it's like a combination of the like of music history yeah and music theory and like sort of understanding who influenced who right. as like musicians totally. so like she has like michael coleman and patty kenny and uh -huh. like like these are the the people and the recordings and you know, like that yeah she follows and so were there were there were there recordings that you listened to oh yeah i like, mean like what are the standout ones well, it depends on if for violin, for, for violin. violin. Yeah. Um, depends on the tradition. Well, I'll talk about klezmer maybe because, um, that's a really for klezmer more than for other traditions. There's like a really clear corpus of like, these are the old violin recordings that we have. And the reason for that is the Holocaust and just yep. very few recordings survive that. <sighs> and the ones that did, most of them are not strings. So there's kind of this core of like uh, Max Leibowitz, um, Jacob Gegna, um, Abe Schwartz and his orchestra. Um, some of them are anonymous. We don't know who these people were, um, but these are like turn of the century, um, like old 78s probably that have been digitized and yeah. circulated among the klezmorum of today. And <laughs> is that the word for klezmer culture, the klezmorum? Uh, klezmer, well, klezmer actually means a klezmer musician and klezmorum is the, the plural of that in Yiddish. Oh, yeah. So you can say a person is a klezmer? Yeah, I think <laughs> that that's mean, how or, that was used originally. No way. And okay. now it's come to mean like the meaning. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are recordings that I consult with all the time because, yeah. and they're, you know, there's, they're amazing and very like, I think my big takeaway from those is like just how much musicians from different traditions were talking to each other at that time. Cause as, as a Jewish violinist, you had to be able to play all this stuff, the Jewish stuff, the Greek stuff, the classical stuff. A lot of the violinists that actually got recorded, um, were also amazing classical players and you can really hear that in their playing. Mm. Oh man. I took a class on the like history of recorded string playing oh is that the with um larry lesser yes yeah, yeah, yeah that's see i think that's that's something i'd love to see more of in the classical tradition is like because yeah. there's amazing stuff from that era and you can really you know you can really like learn a lot from the lineage of who influenced who and like just make informed decisions that that's really what it comes down to is like right i think if you want to be a responsible folk musician you have to think critically about like where these different styles and gestures are yeah. coming from and like, what do you, what do you, you want to represent and how are you going to do that? And what's the balance between imitating other people and like having your own voice? Yeah. You know, that class that I took with Larry Lesser, what I took away from that was like at the time I was like uncomfortably obsessed with <laughs> uh like how technically perfect was perfect enough uh -huh. that question yeah and so like what i remember seeing is like the the like recordings of joseph joachim for instance he was the violinist that premiered the brahms violin concerto and there's like one of those old wax cylinders of him yeah and you know like i had spent my you know, like up until that point, entire adult life, like really getting super, I guess, anal about things like, you know, sound and intonation and articulation and like cleanliness and like all this stuff. And yeah. You listen to those recordings of him and they are rough, you know, yeah. like, it, it, at least in like in the modern comparison, right? Like, mm -hmm. like a famous violinist now would never play that way and that yeah. there's tons of reasons for why that happened but i remember at the time that was one of the things that was sticking out to me the most because i that's how i was sort of like absorbing classical culture was through this like emphasis on like you know technique and cleanliness is the most important thing yeah but you like going back a couple generations you learn that that's definitely not the most important thing and like how do you 
no one was really talking about that. Yeah. And so I like, and, and I haven't really processed this before, but I feel like now that's sort of one of the things where I realize like, that's the beginning of me being able to relax enough to enjoy playing. Yeah. I think that's so important. You mentioned earlier that the, the switch for you about taking music, not seriously, but professionally mm -hmm. happened in your senior year of college. You yeah. went to Durham university in uh -huh. England. Yeah. Yes. And then, then you transferred to Williams college mm -hmm. in Western mass. Yeah. Um, and can you talk a little bit about like the difference in the like cultures that you noticed between England and yeah, Williams for with regard to music or yeah, yeah. So Durham was interesting. This was the place in England because it was it was not a conservatory. Actually, neither of these places were conservatories, but Durham was the big university, and in England, there's a pretty clear distinction between like music college, like a place like Royal College of Music is an example, and university, which may have a music department, but those tend to be not as performance oriented. Hmm. So what there was officially through the department was all musicology and composition pretty much. And, but there was a ton of performance happening and it was all run by the students. Like I, there were three or four like student run symphony orchestras and student run operas. Like we put on these big productions like Cosi Fantuti and yeah. um, all this stuff that was like totally organized by students, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Student run big bands, student run choirs that the choirs especially were like really high level. Yeah. Um, so it was really cool. And then, um, so I played a lot in the sort of the, the top student run, um, symphony orchestras and chamber orchestras. And, you know, looking back, they were not like at the level of what I, might have had at a conservatory environment, sure. Sure. but it felt we did feel this sense of ownership um, in terms of like we voted for our conductors every year. Yeah. And anyone could audition to conduct. Yep. And we tended to end up with like the same two or three people mm -hmm. most of the time. And sometimes they would go on power trips and like, like we had this student conductor who was like, I remember thinking like, this guy is younger than me and why is he so full of himself? And he like, <laughs> insisted on wearing white gloves at all the rehearsals. Ooh. And, yeah. So it, like that <laughs> part of it was weird. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was a really, there was a really big social scene associated with it. Yeah. Um, like after every rehearsal, we would go to the pub yeah. and there would be a lot of us, you know, like sometimes it would be close to the whole symphony orchestra. It was like that Monty Python sketch where the, the BBC Philharmonic goes to the bathroom. She's <laughs> <laughs> looking it up. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot like that. And okay. uh, yeah, we would just like all go to the pub and we'd be, you know, after a few drinks, we'd be launching into the theme of whatever Tchaikovsky symphony we were working on. Yeah. And, like, yeah, just kind of getting rowdy with that in the right. best way. <laughs> So I didn't realize that at Durham there was the that it was the student run aspect of it. Yeah, because it was that, really I mean, interesting. That's a lot closer to what Palver is trying to do than I. Yeah, I, I just didn't. I, I I didn't put much thought into it, but I've heard you talk a lot about that because that was. It seems like a pretty consistent source of joy while you were there. Yeah, it was right? definitely a a really big part of my social aspect, um, my social life rather. Then can you talk about Williams? Yeah, so when I got to Williams, um, it's also not a conservatory, but it was a pretty big um, music department with a lot going on. And um, I had a great viola teacher there who I learned a ton from. Um, I played a ton of chamber music because mm -hmm. I was the only violist at the yep. school most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was in like four quartets usually all the time, Whoa. which was kind of a lot. <laughs> um <laughs> that's yeah, extremely a lot because i'm bad at saying no to things uh, okay all right. um yeah and then we had the berkshire symphony there which was sort sure. of this weird mix of professional musicians and williams music faculty and students mm. that 
I have a lot of opinions about the Berkshire Symphony and how oh. it is run um, that I don't want to go into too much here. But we had a professional conductor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has the potential to be like a really good side, kind of side-by-side learning experience mm. for the students, and that's how it's intended. Right. But the way it's set up, especially for the winds, is like people get thrown into playing these auxiliary instruments that they're not super comfortable with. and Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and the music's always like... We got to play a lot of really amazing music, but it's always like super difficult and not necessarily like well rehearsed or hmm. like they don't really set the students up for success right? in that way. But I got to play a lot of cool stuff there. I got to play a viola concerto with the orchestra, oh, nice. um, which, which was one? actually a disaster because oh, no. um, my bridge broke halfway through the performance. What? Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah. So Yikes. I had to like do the thing where I luckily my teacher was playing principal and her viola is like pretty much the same size as mine because violas can be so varied yeah but so I took her instrument and they did like a viola swap around in the section yeah and just like played the rest of the concerto on this new instrument which was actually like great like after it happened because I wasn't nervous at all I was it just everything felt really right surreal (laughs) (laughs) and I got to like feel what it would feel like to play a concerto with an orchestra and not feel nervous yeah yeah yeah, because like i feel like with nerves at a certain point if something like that goes so completely wrong it's just like well i mean like yeah that's are off it was the yeah it was like the worst thing that could have happened and it was also not my fault right so at that point you you knew that you were going in a different direction than you had thought by the way, when you like went to Durham, mm-hmm. what were you studying? I was studying Russian language and literature mostly. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. And you continue to do that at Williams, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I do want to though get to like you and um, NEC and yeah. where you're at now and like um, I in reflecting i feel like there aren't other people who i know who have your skill sets in terms of like not not only like language but um this uh, like splitting splitting the classical and folk traditions so you know like my question is about like how you led yourself to being in nec and you know the uh your your musical life now um but also about just like how you feel how it feels to be lysander in these like different worlds that you've got your feet in yeah that's those are really interesting questions um i mean in some ways i feel lucky that i i guess yeah i feel lucky that most of what i'm doing now is things that I really love and so they feel really different but um they're mostly pretty invigorating and exciting to be a part of yeah um so I try to kind of remind myself of that when I get frazzled or fried and another really important thing I've learned so so I'm in the um I'm doing my master's at the contemporary improvisation department of New England Conservatory which is sort of grounded in these originally in these ideas of like a third way between jazz and classical music that incorporates improvisation. Um, and now it's expanded to include composition and songwriting and various kinds of world music. And, um, everybody who does the program is doing something really different, um, which is awesome. Um, but one thing I've just, had to grapple with and become more comfortable with is like that when people hear you play a lot of what they hear has to do with context and like the musical context that that you're in at the moment and the musical context that they see you coming from Mm. so like i feel like when i play in a group like palaver i'm like you know often like too loud or too much or too something and then when i 
go to NEC like an hour later and play in some contemporary improvisation ensemble, I hear like, come on, play out more. Like, give us bigger gestures. Like, why are you, you don't have to accompany them. Why are you feeling so shy? So having hmm. to like toggle back and forth between those things, sometimes several times over the course of one day right, can be really exhausting. And I think it does make me a better, more adaptable musician, but it's also like the skill sets, the, the skills I use for Palaver are like not at all necessarily the skills I need to like do CI, do CI stuff. It sounds stressful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot this year and specifically it's been a lot. Do you think that CI, the people at NEC think of you as a classical player and like when they're giving those critiques, do you, like, is that what you mean? Like sometimes. They, they... Yeah. That's, that's an example. Yeah. And so that's, that's already weird for me. Right. Cause like, that, 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 yeah, is, I don't think it, it sounds like from your history, that's only ever been like 50%. Right. <laughs> who you are. It's been like roughly 50% of what I do. Yeah. And then, so yeah. So it's, yeah. it seems like there's like a big sort of open question mark of like, what's Lysander's music. Yeah. And that's another thing that the CI program has forced me to really grapple with because every week, like I have to write my own music and I didn't realize show you were doing it to that. the class. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. more composition than I expected there to be. And it's been really cool, but also like, it's terrifying. Cause like, we're not, you know, especially in the midst of all this, like feeling like kind of feeling like an outsider in different situations. Mm -hmm. It's hard to then get up and be like, this is my music that I wrote. Yeah. What have you been like learning from that process? Um, just like how to creatively use the material that I feel like I really understand. Yeah. Um, like I'm taking this one of my classes at NEC is on model composition where we'll kind of like look at a piece of music and transcribe it and learn it and talk about what's going on and mm. then talk about some other models that are using similar principles. And yeah. then we have to write our own thing based on that. So the last one we did was talking about extended tonality using pedal points. And we looked at like Ravel and Debussy and people of that French school on the one hand and then on the other hand we looked at like miles davis and um coltrane and all the and george russell's lydian chromatic concept and like all these like jazz people who um in a similar way to Ravel and wc wanted to get away from like the chromaticism and the constant chord changes and mm. i mean miles davis literally said like there are too many chords like I don't want to play so many chords. <laughs> and so they go back to, to modal music and, and to just using pedal points as a, as a point of departure. Right. And so the assignment was to write something using those techniques. And I picked a song from the Republic of Georgia because that music is super droney and yeah, like there's almost always a drone and melodies happening on, on top of that. And I used that as uh I sort of the basis for some reharmonizations that were more like from Debussy's world and using mm -hmm. more jazz harmony. Um, but then I recorded it using voices. And when I played it for the class, they were like, Whoa, where'd you get those harmonies? And, and a lot of it was just Georgian music because right. they have weird polyphonic singing with a lot of drones. Yeah. 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 That was an encouraging moment. And honestly, like the first time I felt like, Oh, I did something that people thought was hip. Yeah. At NEC. Which <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, like hard to do. It's hard to do at NEC because there's so much, you know, there's amazing creativity going on, but there's also so much like pressure to be hip and mm -hmm. yeah. irony and like sort of sneering at things that maybe used to be hip but are no longer. And right. Yeah. It's like hard to wade through all that. Right. There's a there's an emphasis there on trying to be on like whatever the cutting edge is. Yeah. Which is kind of constantly weirdly conformist in its own way. Right. 
Yeah. It reminds me, I think, I can't remember if we've talked about this, but like the idea that one of the big things that seems to be happening in like culture at large right now is uh-huh. that like really big institutions are trying to like imitate what all these uh, like, no, it, it was the, the context that I heard it in was someone talking about Nickelodeon in the early nineties, uh-huh. which I don't know if you watch TV when you're a kid, but and yeah. I didn't really, but like there was this thing that was happening with Nickelodeon where it, like, the culture of apparently that place was mm-hmm. just like, we need to put some stuff on TV. Just like you have an idea, like, great, let's do it. Just <laughs> like put it up there. And it ended up setting these like incredible trends. Same thing with MTV, huh. uh, like where they were just like, we've got an idea, like let's put music or cartoons or like whatever out there, <laughs> like as much as possible. And there was no emphasis on like trying to make it popular they just had an opportunity to fill some time you know with, yeah with whatever felt good to them yeah i heard and the same those... thing about uh early television in the 50s like if you watch the right. the ernie kovac show it's like what <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's some like wild stuff yeah. happening out there but then now um like the music industry is all about trying to figure out what's going to be the trend <laughs> and creating it as opposed to just giving like a bunch of people a free yeah lens and i think that like a place well conservatories in general are a really tough environment to balance those two things of yeah like, how do you give somebody the freedom to make something like amazingly authentic and at the same time uh teach them a certain something about like a sense of standards yeah, that's that's a tough thing in the CI department specifically. And I, you know, based on my limited time at NEC, I don't think they care at all about like relevance or mm. like really, yeah, really like catering at all to people, like to what people want. Like I think the professors there are always just going to do their own thing, which is kind of cool and kind of like, you know, means probably the building is going to be falling apart like forever. And, you know, they're just going to, you know, it's not going to be like Berkeley where there's right. a huge endowment and huge brand recognition and, right. um, you know, and things that they're able to do there that NEC can't do as a result. Right. The the sort of like last question that I yeah. like to ask people is a, is a two-part question. And it's um, to start with like, what is the your least favorite part of your like job mm-hmm. and i'll say like your life as a musician right now like what's yeah. what's your least favorite part of that and then afterwards i'd like to hear about your favorite part the best part okay um i think my least favorite part is emails <laughs> <laughs> I've felt that a lot these past couple of weeks because I've been uh, kind of coordinating this concert that we're doing yeah. with Kulumba, um, which makes sense because I'm in both of those groups. Right. But just so many emails and logistics. And I often end up doing it because, like, I'm not amazing at it, but I'm fine at it. And I mm. have, like... I'm a pretty good time manager, so I trust myself to do it in a way that I just don't trust a lot of the people I work with to take care of those logistical things. Mm, yeah. But I definitely don't enjoy it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of that thing that you were saying of like you have trouble saying no to people. Yeah. You know, like I actually you... have like a pathological fear of letting people down. Right. And with like emails. Everything. That, that's... <laughs> I feel like that yeah. is probably emails is probably in my own life the primary place where that comes out, that fear of letting people down, of like if I'm anxious about something, there's like an eighty-five percent chance it's about an email. Yeah. And it's uh and it's it's just never ending and and it makes me resentful of people who don't respond to their emails or who don't I'm sorry. Read the email responses. I'm sorry. 
No, you're fine. <laughs> okay. I'm not thinking about you at all. <laughs> okay. Well, thank people you. who don't respond to their emails. <laughs> <Nate>. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. To okay. answer your question, that's so, yeah. emails. Emails and logistics and yeah. just like that grind. Yeah. And then the best part. The best part. Um, the best part that I'm feeling right now is just like having a lot of artistic agency over what I do yeah, and being able to like, like putting this program together with Palaver and Columba has been such a ton of work in emails, but also incredible to have so much freedom to kind of like program what I, not just what I want, but like have ideas and have, and really consider them and have them taken seriously. Right like from the get-go without necessarily an existing framework. Yeah. So I feel lucky to have had that now. And um, with the community choir in, I'm running this community choir now in JP. That's, mm. um, yeah, we also have a lot of freedom. I get to, I've been really enjoying doing arranging um, yeah. for that because it's actually a really creative process to like imagine sounds and then get to hear them. Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of, I have a lot of, of opportunities to be creative now, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, at the time of this recording, we have not yet performed our concert of Mapamundi, but it is like probably one of, one of the best feeling concerts that mm -hmm. we've like put together so far in that there's simultaneously like everybody's doing something really different than they usually do. I mean, we're collaborating with Sophie and Adam who mm -hmm. we haven't collaborated with singers before, you know, or well, it's, it's, it's still relatively new to us. Yeah. And, um, and we're all, you know, we're playing a lot of early music and a lot of folk tradition uh, like balkan music and we're doing some singing too and like <laughs> uh so everyone's doing something that's like a little bit outside of their comfort zone and it's combined with this like absolute confidence that what we're doing is just great yeah <laughs> like everybody gets that and that's such a rare thing and it, i i chalk it up to your like sense of organization and your sense of like balancing things that you you like know what kind of challenges we were up for you know in creating this program and it's just been like wonderful ah, and i don't even care yes. how the concert goes tonight <laughs> yeah i kind of feel the same way yeah it's just been such a good process yeah. i think there's something to be said for just having worked with both palaver and Columbo, which is me adam and sophie for such a long time that like and being able to not predict exactly, but anticipate like what's going to be challenging and how, and like sort of set up like detour signs to right. divert people from those anxieties. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. felt like a lot of, yeah, a lot of what playing this program is and also recognizing the distinction between like productive problem solving and just, unproductive worrying which i think we do a lot of unproductive worrying in yeah. palaver yep yeah but this cycle has been absolutely amazing to put together and yeah. has felt really different and so the group is making sounds that i've like never heard them make and yeah it's just really really exciting yeah and it's so cool yeah and i'm just so the, excited about the it. fact that people feel good about it it's like yeah. that's like a worthy goal in and of yeah. itself. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. This has been great. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> Pleasure. Yeah. Anytime. All right. All right. You feel good? Yeah. Okay, good. There we go. That was great. Huge thank you to Lysander. Uh, you could probably hear that both of us were feeling pretty sick. It had been a long haul already, uh, but that was a great way to spend a sleepy morning. 
So, uh, Lysander, uh, he's doing well. He is now finishing up a master's at NEC remotely, which, of course, is a bummer. Uh, but it was his birthday recently. I hope that was some consolation. Uh, he is isolating out in Western Mass. Lysander, I'm sending you love. Stay well. Uh, so... Um, to be honest, I do not have much energy for the kind of reflection or the coalescing of 30,000 foot views that I usually like to do at this point. But I will say, uh, very much in the sort of social distancing, weird times vibes that we're in right now, I did end up thinking a lot about that thing Lysander said about the limited list of klezmer violinists and recordings that survived the holocaust i thought about the deaths of those millions of people among whom were the carriers of oral traditions that are lost of course it put me in mind of how fragile our society truly is and then i thought about how depressing that thought was <laughs> um that is because uh you know i'm I'm looking at our society right now and it's pretty easy to think about how fragile it all is. But, you know, I'm feeling a little better today in general. Uh, but the past couple of weeks have been pretty rough for me. Uh, surprisingly, I have been uh, finding a lot of joy in just uh, doing music on my own. Uh, many of you uh, may have seen that I did a live stream a little while ago for the Pal of Strings page. That was that was fun to get ready for, but it was really surprisingly tiring. Uh, yeah, and you know I haven't always had a great relationship with personal practice, uh, but this has been something of a refuge playing music when it's just me. So that's nice. And listen, I, I hope you are all doing well. I'm sending you my best, and I hope that you and yours are safe and healthy. So uh, take care. That's it. The show was produced, recorded, and edited by me and is made possible by Palaver's Patreon donors. With help from Brian Gilling, Brent Edmondson, Kiyoshi Hayashi, Alex Gooden, Heath Marlowe, and all the members of the Palaver team. Anna French gave me belly rubs when I got stressed out, and I wrote the music. That is it for this episode. Take good care of yourselves. Take good care of your feet that work so hard. Buy yourself a pumice stone.